Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Living free. Welcome to the Living Free Show on 3CR Community Radio, A55 kilohertz on your AM dial and 3CR on digital radio. Hi, I'm Bill, and I'd like to acknowledge the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, traditional owners of the land from which 3CR transmits people-powered radio. I'd like to pay my respects to the elders past and present and to acknowledge that this land was stolen, that sovereignty was never ceded. Each week on the Living Free Show... We showcase one of the many programs that assist in recovery from drugs, alcohol, gambling and food addictions. Our guests share their recovery story and highlight that shared experience saves lives. So I'd like to welcome Tanya to the show. Hi, Tanya. Uh, Good morning, Bill. Tanya's a peer support worker from an organisation called Doors Wide Open, located in Bunbury, Western Australia. Doors Wide Open are a not-for-profit organisation providing support to those recovering from methamphetamine and other addictions and assistance to those supporting them through their recovery journey. It provides a peer-led support model and operates on a non-judgmental environment with empathy and compassion. So, Tanya, we usually chat about growing up and the things that influenced your early life. So what was life like for you growing up? Um, So I moved over from New Zealand when I was five. Uh, We grew up in a tiny wee town in the Northern Territory in the Red Dirt. I was quite lonely, really. I never really felt like I fitted in anywhere or had many friends, even though family life was really great. Like mum and dad were awesome. We never wanted for anything. There was always parties around. Mum and dad were party central. They loved, I think that's the mouldy side of my father coming out, always wanting to feed the, the tribe, the community. So there was barbecues and booze most weeks um, until early hours of the morning. But we were all happy. I just, yeah, I had a lot of trouble fitting in anywhere. Yeah. Why, why do you think that was? I didn't know then. It wasn't until later on when I was in my 30s that I was diagnosed with borderline personality disorder, which now makes a lot of sense. So when I was growing up, not feeling that attachment to people, I felt like I needed a strong attachment. And it wasn't until I hit puberty, I sort of I became quite promiscuous, I suppose. Yeah. And that led me down a path of looking for self-worth and self-esteem from men. Very unhealthy. I was a very young mum, so I was pregnant at 15. And I had three children by the time I was 21. Right. Yeah. That's a a full uh, full life. It was. It was. I, I grew up making really rash decisions without thinking about consequences or understanding it was just that instant gratification I was always after um that need to to feel belong to someone that you know yeah so what about family what was your family life like for you um pretty steady pretty pretty steady dad worked Mm. in the mines we all lived together very very happily it wasn't until I was a teenager he started doing fly and fly out work uh mom worked part-time my sisters and my brothers, um, so I'm the second oldest of five. 
we all we all got along normal sibling rivalry I was never very good at school I couldn't really understand a lot of what I was meant to or I felt like I didn't anyway some some things I were good at but I never felt felt good enough yeah what did you find it difficult making friends or having friends yeah so I I grew up thinking that to have a friend, you needed a deep attachment, a really strong attachment, a strong feeling of friendship. But now I realise that friendships happen on all different levels and we're very lucky if we get a, a best friend. So I never I never had a best friend. I never had a group of people I hung out with at school because I, I, I felt uncomfortable. I felt like they didn't want me around. And I think a lot of that was coming from my own lack of self-worth yeah so I would just hop from group to group to try you know and then I started bunking school because I didn't feel like I belonged there and no one wanted me there so um yeah I didn't didn't do a lot of high school Mm. right okay when we're exposed to alcohol and drugs what's the what's the earliest oh goodness like I said my parents they would have parties all the time and I think I started having my first drinks at 13, maybe 12, sneaking it, um, sneaking my dad's cigarettes really early, um, sneaking out of home really early. Yeah, quite young. Yeah. Um, drugs, not so much. So I, I smoked a little bit of marijuana when I was in my late teens. And then I didn't really, other than the occasional drink, I didn't touch much at all until I was mid-30s. Oh, okay. I went straight from not using drugs to injecting meth, which was yeah, a bit of a bit of a crazy story about that. Again, I was undiagnosed at this stage. I was being treated for depression and anxiety. I had a major relationship breakdown over here in Australia after leaving an abusive um, marriage in New Zealand. So, yeah, we moved back to New Zealand and then we moved back to Australia. Um, relationship breakdown and I couldn't get support from the government over here. And I started escorting. Right, okay. Yeah. Um, so that was that was early 30s, mid-30s. And through that... I noticed that my clients were, were, most of them were high on something and then that became normal and then I saw them using it and I was shocked at the beginning but I got good money, I was treated well, I was getting a lot of self-worth from that sort of feeling and then it wasn't, after a while, it wasn't really a big step to try it myself. These guys were coming in and they were so happy and full of energy and just, you know, well, it appeared from from, from my view anyway. Yeah. It, it sounds uh, it sounds unusual to me, but that's... <laughs> it, it, is un, it is unusual, but there was, you could understand that there was a lot of things that happened, like my move back to New Zealand, but I had three kids by the time I was 21. I got married to a very abusive husband um, it wasn't the abuse that made me leave him. It was the fact that I caught him in another woman's bed. Yeah. And my dad was on the phone 
and we were talking and he said, look, Tania, stop putting up brick walls and just get over here. Um, two weeks later, me and my daughter arrived, my youngest daughter. We had a suitcase each and no way to support ourselves. Not, yeah. So that was coming back to Australia. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So now I'd like to welcome Lee to the show. Lee is also a peer support worker from Doors Wide Open, and um, he's going to share his experience too. So welcome to the show, Lee. Yeah, Bill, how are you? Good, thanks. So, Lee, talking about growing up and the things that influenced you, what was your early life like in your family? Hey, Bill. My family was uh, pretty good. My dad was pretty militaristic. Mum was carefree, both were hardworking parents. School life, I was, I was bullied every day when I was in pre-primary to year 10, since I was like five to I was 15. My grandfather was an alcoholic, heavily an alcoholic. Childhood was all right. I was provided for, didn't really have many friends, didn't really like get to go out much. Um, my parents were always too busy, just work, work, work. So I was really, didn't go out much, didn't go to parties much until I was about 18. Yeah. But I was always pressed. I really hated school, really hated life. I, mean, I, tr- I tried committing suicide when I was eight years old. I was just really, really depressed. You know, like I really hated my childhood. <laughs> like uh, I just couldn't make any friends. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, you mentioned your grandfather was an alcoholic. Was there any other drinking in your family? Or? Yeah, my mum used to drink a fair bit. My grandfather was an alcoholic. First time I met my grandfather was when I was 13. Yeah. And, yeah, he crashed my bedroom. I remember when I was 18, um, I had to wrestle him because he, he tried fighting my mum's new partner at the time. Yeah. And, um, yeah, he was extremely drunk. It was Yeah, he was um, a really, really bad alcoholic. It was really sad. Yeah, it was really sad to see. Yeah. So what sort of impact did that have on your mum? I think... It just drove mum to drink. Uh, mum had a hard child uh, had a hard childhood herself. What the way my grandpa would speak to my mum really affected. Mum's partner at the time was a really bad drinker as well. I remember when I was eighteen as well. Mum got to the point when she was suicidal. I had to talk my man of taking a life. You know, I had to. There was a lot of times there I had to help mum out. She went through a really bad depression, and um, bit by bit, I didn't realise how much it affected me. You know, I was I was drinking. I was I was a binge drinker back then, just binge drinking on the weekends, working during the day. Yeah. So when when did that start? Around. So, uh, so it was probably about when um, she met a new partner. She been, she broke up with my father about when I was eighteen. Met a new partner when I was eighteen. The grandpa came around one night, and yeah, we all hit the alcohol, and it was really a really bad night. And then it just continued on. Like there was a lot of nights like that. At Mum's house, it got pretty hectic. Right. Yeah. So you said you didn't like school much. So what was the um, what was the outcome of school? Oh, I ended up graduating year twelve, but it really affected me. I mean, when I was a kid, you know, like yeah, that trench coat mafia. I had a list. I wanted to shoot up the whole school. I wanted to burn the school down. Yeah. Yeah, it was. I I was terrified to go to school. You know, like um, I remember when I was. Year three, I had 30 people kick me, beat me up, spit on me, call me names. We're the first Asian family. It was from, I'm from, I was from a small town, small country town. And, um, you know, like my parents were the first interracial couple, like my father being 
Asian, mum being Australian. Yeah. So it was like, my dad's brown, mum's white. So yeah, you, you cop a lot of flack from that back in the early nineties. Yeah, I'm sure it doesn't sound good. Yeah, so it was pretty rough. So I was growing up, I was getting attacked, getting bashed with sticks, you name it. You know, it was always me on me against fifteen other people. So I was always by myself. So yeah, I hated school. Yeah, no, I'm sure you did. So drinking then, did you did you find people to drink with? Yeah, when I got when I turned so when I turned eighteen, I began working. Then I started drinking, you know, like um, I was drinking a lot. I noticed I started drinking a fair bit. Oh, at that time, I was a road worker, so I was working um, working with asphalt. Yeah. So you know that that type of scene, you know, there's a lot of heavy drinking, a lot of a lot of people drink. So we used to knock off work, trade to the bottle, get drunk before we drove home. So we were pretty much drunk before we got to the, back to work site after we knocked off, and then we just drove home. Yeah, right. It was a constant. I mean, I got to the point where I was drinking, and this is before drugs. So like I was, I'd be drinking like I could drink a carton of Toys extra dry. Four pack of turkey, a bottle of bottle of bourbon. I'll still be sober. That's a lot, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'd, I'd go for a lot of alcohol. I drink a lot of alcohol every weekend. I go for like seven bottles. That's like seven seven hundred ml bottles. It's like um, spirits. Yeah. Yeah. It's easy. <laughs> that sounds like an awful lot. So, what was your introduction to drugs then? How did that occur? Uh, so I first started dabbling. I was like, my first incident with, uh, with drugs was when I was 15. I was going you know, to try weed for the first time. And then I didn't really worry about it. didn't really like it. You know, then I started dabbling in with a Coke, with a Speed. So back then, back at that time, I started just dabbling. It was just mainly amphetamines. You know, you just do Speed. People like, you know, it's, you know, want to keep the party going, try with a Speed. And it wasn't too bad. You know, I didn't find myself too addicted to it yet. Yeah. It was chill. Like, try it methamphetamine oh it was about 2016 when i got made redundant from one of my jobs i was working at yeah i worked there for 10 years and i got made redundant but during that time last the last year of that 10 years uh one of my friends introduced me to methamphetamine and that's when i fully started delving into the depths of methamphetamine and the uh, world brings upon you yeah i'm sure yeah okay well so we might take a break there yep uh, our first song today is by Fancy Normal, and it's called Sad Champagne, courtesy of Australian Music Radio Airplay Project.
75 meters, 50 meters, 25 meters, 15 meters, 10 meters, 5 meters. Grass fires move faster than you think. How well do you know fire? Plan, act, survive. Go to vic.gov.au slash nofire. Authorised by the Victorian Government, Melbourne. A 3CR supporter. Published or Not has been around for years, but now Jan Goldsmith is joined by... David McLean. We will chat about words and writing, authors and audiences, publishers and printing, a voice for them all on 3CR. Published or Not, every Thursday, 11.30 till noon. When you get home, baby, write me a few yard lines. Welcome back. Uh, this is the Living Free Show on 3CR, 855 kilohertz on your AM dial and 3CR on digital radio. If you'd like to listen to one of our many podcasts, uh, you can find them on your preferred podcast platform or just Google 3CR Living Free and check out our website. You can also contact us via phone, email or Twitter. Today I'm talking with Tanya about doors wide open and recovery from methamphetamine use. Um, so Tanya, before the break, we were talking about um, you doing some escorting when you got back to Australia because you didn't have much money and uh, it was a good way to earn it and you got exposed to drug use at that point mm. and you said you went from not drug using to injecting. Yeah. Uh, so do you want to talk about that transition? Did What, what did it feel like going in, into drug use at that point? Oh. First of all, I have no fear of needles. Yep. Um, in fact, I I always thought I could have been a pathologist. <laughs> um, it, it, it was surreal. It doesn't still now, it doesn't feel real. It feels like I was just watching myself do it. And the first couple of times, oh, it was incredible. I'd never felt so great. I um all my inhibitions had gone. I just felt warm, warm from 
my toes to my head and just it was wonderful the first couple of times. So what happened then? Um, I liked it too much and I wanted it more and more. And then I started losing weight and I'm quite a big girl. So I was like, well, hey, this is, you know, this is good on all angles. Not realising that my physical health and my mental health were declining rapidly. I'd need more and more. So I started working. Instead of working for cash, I started working for meth. I started doing things that were morally worse than what I ever thought I could do um, to get high. And then my clients, my only clients became the ones that were dealing it and um, I knew I could get it off. So that brought a lot of trouble and stress into my life as well. I had guys trying to get me to deal it. Did you do that? Did you deal it? Um, no, no, I, I try, I, I tried, I bought, I brought a bolt lot once to deal it, to start dealing it and then just scoffed it. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so that did not work for me. Yeah. All right. Um, so do you want to talk a little bit about, you know, a day in a life of a meth user? There is no such thing as a day in the life of a meth user. It's days. Time doesn't exist anymore. All that matters is the rush, the buzz, the fall, and getting another rush again. I remember I don't know how long I had been awake for and using, but I was having a really good time until all of a sudden I wasn't. And I knew I needed to sleep and I hadn't eaten. And I was trying to sleep, but my body would just go into fits every time it relaxed. And the scariest thing that happened to me was I had a a seizure, but not a seizure like I'd ever known it before. It was a laughing seizure. And I was lying in bed very, very depressed with this black hole of hate growing inside my stomach because I hadn't used, trying to sleep, and I just started laughing, uncontrollably, gut-wrenchingly laugh, although on the inside I was screaming and crying and not wanting to laugh, and I couldn't control it. I couldn't stop, and I didn't, yeah, total, total um, loss of control over my mind. Um, I was seeing things and hearing things, and I thought people were outside with guns and, I had put flour, sprinkled flour around my bedroom windows and stuff like that and go out and check it in the morning to make sure that no one had been looking in. It doesn't sound good. No, yeah, a a day in the life of an addict is all of that stuff all mixed together. It made no sense. It wasn't a morning and an afternoon and a night or breakfast, lunch and tea. It was just a mess. Mm. So I guess two things. One, what what was happening to your kids at this point? Uh, and the second one is what caused you to seek help? My oldest two were still in New Zealand. They were doing their own thing. One was at uni and one was in a, a relationship 
um, living with her. My youngest daughter moved out when everyone realised what I was doing. Um, she moved out to live with her boyfriend and their parents. I had lost everyone. My family put up boundaries and I had no idea what boundaries were. I was just so hurt that they wouldn't talk to me or support me or come over for my birthday. Oh, I was so angry and I didn't understand why. I just was very much the victim and I was so depressed. I remember just not wanting to feel so hurt. This That black black hole inside my stomach felt like a physical entity that was growing and taking over my whole self. And so I went to, I, I remember going to a doctor here in Bunbury, a walk-in GP, and uncontrollably crying all the way there and in the office and they sort of ushered me into his room straight away because I was, I was making a bit of a scene. Um, I was simply just, just crying and begging him for help. And all he said was, you need to go to the emergency room. And I wasn't going to go to the emergency room because I know that you turn up to the emergency room under the influence, they're not going to, they don't do much. They don't assess you for anything. So that that was a failure. I did an anonymous post on Facebook on one of the local Ask It pages about support and Doors Wide Open came up. So I sent them a, a message and I got a response really quickly from someone who just seemed to care. And it was the first time I had felt that in a couple of years. And so I came into Doors and that's when things really started to change. For the first time in my life, I felt like I had belonged, somewhere to belong. So the journey from having that hate feeling to get to get into Doors, in between that there was a suicide attempt. Um, I was in a coma for three days here in Bunbury. And I was really, 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 really fortunate to have a mental health doctor come in and assess me and actually give me a diagnosis of borderline personality disorder. And I started doing CBT therapy, cognitive behavioral therapy. Yeah. And so uh, with that and the support of DOORS, it really just started me, it, it showed me another another option that was possible simply by being okay in my own skin and accepting things that I've done and that, yeah, I'm going to be okay. I'm worthy. Yeah. So how, how did it help you initially? What was the, what was the thing that made you feel that things could improve that gave you hope, I guess? Oh, look, honestly, it was having people that believed in me. And that, that, that was the staff at Doors and the other people that were attending Doors. I've never to this day found another place like it. I could come in and walk in the door and crumble on the front couch, which I did a few times, bawling my eyes out in tears and just be embraced. 
because I'd gone and slipped up again and I was coming down, I was feeling miserable and none of that mattered. All that mattered is that I was there and I wanted to try again and these these people just genuinely cared about how I was feeling and took it seriously, um, took me seriously and what I was saying had value. Yeah. So when did you start becoming involved in Doors Wide Open as a volunteer? Um, so I went to rehab in 2019, um, January 2019, and when I came out of rehab, I started attending doors regularly to volunteer, and I've, and then from there, um, did that through until April last year, where I became a support worker here, paid support worker. Right. So do you want to talk about being a, a peer support worker, about how that how that feels for you, having been through that experience yourself? Yeah, well, at, at the beginning it was a, oh, gosh, how can I explain it? I didn't have a clue what I was doing. I don't think any of us did. <laughs> we simply wanted to share our stories and let people know that they weren't alone and that we exist and they, they can come here and have that feeling of belonging that we received. So a lot of a lot of it, yeah. Again, it's just quite surreal how it all just fell into place. Um, but being a support worker and having somebody come in that's broken and that feels like there is no hope, and just spending a few hours with them and seeing them come back again, and each time they come back they're a bit more, they feel a bit more them and they're more lively and chatty and smiling and it's just a, it's a wonderful, wonderful way to be able to help people. Yeah. I, yeah. I'm sure. Um, can I ask you a question about, have you been exposed to any other programs in your recovery? So I did go to rehab. Yeah. yeah. Um, I went to Palmerston Brunswick Rehab. They were amazing. They're a therapeutic community. So they work alongside mental health and um, really making you aware of your actions and how it impacts the community um, and others around you. So that was something that I hadn't really understood in my past. Yeah. And it, it shines a bright light on, on yourself and your faults. You know, we all have faults. We all have personality traits that aren't that great <laughs> um, to some people, some people more, but, yeah. Mm. So CBT therapy and rehab were pretty amazing. I'm just doing my certificate for in alcohol and other drugs, which has been another eye-opener. So, yeah. Yeah. Can I ask you about your mum and your relationship with your mum now and your relationship with your kids? Yes. Yeah, so it took a long time for me to, a couple of years for me to form those relationships back again. We are all so close. Unfortunately, addiction is something that runs in my family. My father is an alcoholic. I lost my sister a few months ago to liver failure from drinking. And I have two other sisters that are in active addiction from methamphetamine as well. We're, we, we all try to support each other and we all love each other. It's, it's just really hard. Yeah. So what about your kids? How's the relationship going? Amazing. <laughs> Amazing. I think I have the best kids in the world, hands down. 
proudest mama. I do. I am. <laughs> um, so we're, we we are tighter now than what we've ever been. My oldest two who were in New Zealand while I was going through all of my troubles are now so understanding. We have been really open about my misgivings as a parent and how much we truly love and respect each other now. My youngest daughter is only 22. She's building her own house, um, engaged to be married. She's just doing extremely well. All my kids are doing extremely well. Yeah. Yeah, my parents, we're all very close. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's really good. I'm pleased. Mm. Well, I'd like to just say thanks for um, sharing on the show and um, we look forward to uh, hearing about your progress in the future. Beautiful. Yep, watch the space. (laughs) Okay, thanks a lot. Okay, well, so we might take a break there. Our second song today is by Kat Kantiri and it is called When We Were Young, courtesy of Australian Music Radio Airplay Project. Victorian bushfire survivors. 
we know fire. With flames reaching 1100 degrees, the wave of radiant heat can kill from 200 metres away. If you knew fire, you'd prepare your home. You'd know when to leave, where to go and how to get there. We know how important it is to plan and prepare. How well do you know fire? Plan. Act. Survive. Go to vic.gov.au slash nofire. Authorised by the Victorian Government, Melbourne. A 3CR supporter. Don't have a million dollars and still want to have a good education for your kid? Tune into the Dogs Program. We are the defenders of government schools. 12pm on Saturdays, here on 3CR. 855 and AM Dial podcast, streaming live on 3cr.org.au and 3CR Digital. We defend government schools because they need it. You're listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned to hear the rest of your 3CR podcast. Uh, Welcome back. This is the Living Free Show on 3CR Digital and live streaming on 3cr.org.au. And I'm talking with Lee uh, about Doors Wide Open and their support for recovering methamphetamine users and their family. And Lee's sharing his uh, recovery story as well. Lee, before you talked about starting to get into drugs, methamphetamines, you said you started to get there about in, in about 2016 through a, through a friend. So do you want to talk a little bit about how different it was to go from you know, drugs and alcohol to methamphetamines? Yeah, well, I guess the best way to put it was that um, methamphetamine took me to that extreme high. I was only tired of rehab, um, so I learned about the dopamine system. It's like alcohol is about 250 on a dopamine index, and you've got, I don't know, about 300, I think, sorry. Weed's about 600, Coke's about 800. Well, you're looking at meth, it's 1,200, you know, so... The high and the euphoria I got from methamphetamine was like instantaneous and it took me like, it was that intense and it was quick to grab me. And because I really liked, I love my alcohol. I, I mean, I love taking drugs back then. Um, meth was just a whole new ball game pretty much and it was just better than everything else I had and it just got me hooked. Yeah. So how did, how did it change your life then? Yeah, so um, it got to the point where I was like, I was, uh, so I got I got made redundant in 2016 from my, my job. I did 10 years then, I made redundant, gave me a massive payout. And um, it got to the point I was just like really just constantly chasing that high. I and mean, I was stay, staying up for days on end. I think alongside I stayed up for about five days. And I was with my partner at this time and my children, you know, so I was just, always chasing stay up stayed awake for five days two days and it got worse because it's like i started coming down and the come downs was getting worse they were getting the, the, the coming when i was coming down i was getting worse and worse and all of a sudden all the emotions and all the feelings from my past childhood from everything that happened with mom like you know, the relationship break up there just the lack of intimacy in my relationship, it started affecting me, you know. Um, 
I started falling into psychosis a fair bit. I started becoming more insecure about myself, about the relationship. It affected me a lot spiritually, mentally, physically. Um, I've become a, an absent father, an absent partner, because I was always like chasing it. I had to start feeling it to like keep up my habit. Yeah, yeah, it really affected me a lot. Yeah, real. Yeah, so what was your partner thinking at this time? Did, was she a drug user or not? No, she wasn't. She's she's drank. Wasn't alcoholic enough, but she just drank. And uh, yeah, I guess at the time, you know, she she left me once. Told me I needed to stop. So I thought I'd stop. And she took me back. And uh, one day I found a, a cancel voucher, like a cancel pamphlet uh, for methamphetamine. So yeah. her and her mum went to a meth, um, methamphetamine cancel behind my back without me knowing. And I I lost my I just. I went crazy when I found out. Yeah, I was like, "Why? Why didn't you tell me?" Rah rah, and um, yeah, yeah, they just didn't know how to. They just didn't know how to help me. So I got to the point where she um, ended up breaking the relationship off, and that's when reality kicked in for me. Realizing, you know, so I was like, always up all night because what the reason why she broke up with me as well was not just because of the drugs. It was also because I got involved in dealing, and then one day. I had five people rock up to my house and she was out with the kids. So five people rocked up to my house and I had a rival dealer pay these, these guys were paid by a rival dealer to do an aggravated burglary on my house. So I had to sit down with one of the guys. I was heavily armed and I pretty much, you know, we had a chat and I sent them packing. So they left and, um, when they left, my partner and my children locked up at the same time. So when I, I always told her the truth. I told her the truth about me using. I told her the truth what happened then. So not only did I brought drugs to the house, I brought dangers to the house. You know, like my other life come to the house in a crazy way. And I think it was just too much for her. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure it was. Yeah, back, back then I could understand why when she left me. And uh, after eight months of rehab, you know, one thing you one thing you lose in addiction is accountability. You lose all sense of accountability. Nothing is your fault. <laughs> it's always someone else's fault. It's the fault of the past. You don't can take accountability. So when I learned to have accountability, I could say uh, I, I saw the truth, you know, and I, you know, like I, I realized her leaving me, it needed to happen. Because that's when after she left me, I got a lot worse. I went to become homeless, started living on the streets. Uh, my drug habit got a lot worse. Um, I started delving into more crime. Uh, I ended up getting arrested. She put a VR on me. I become obsessive about her. And, um, you know, I become really broken. It broke me. It really, really, that six months, um, it broke me. I had suicide. I, took, I tried to take myself my life several times. Got sent to a hospital to drink that charcoal drink. Um, but, like, you know, no matter what, I couldn't stop. Couldn't stop using. Couldn't. But it was like, because um, I wasn't allowed to say the kids, of course, because everyone knew I bought in, I was on drugs heavily. And um, so it was a period of two months where I, was, I couldn't say the kids, you know. So, and that really tortured me as well. The fact that the relationship was over and I was still in, I was still in love. You know, I wanted, to, I wanted her to take me back. I didn't allow the grieving process to happen. 
every time I started feeling pain in my heart, I would use so I could escape it. The moment I started feeling hopelessness, I would use. The moment I'd start missing my kids, I would use. The moment I'd start missing her, I would use. And um, that was what happened, you know, and that's, it got to the point where I just didn't want to feel anything. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, Lee, what was the trigger to get you to get help and take it seriously? Well, I guess it was a time when, um, so I I got to the point where no one on my phone would answer. Uh, my family wouldn't engage me. Um, no one would engage me. My, my father was barely engaged with me. That he was just pushing himself to. I got to the I got to the literal point when I was covered head to toe in blood, and I was driving I was driving through um, where I was you know, where I was living at the time. It was like just screw drivers jammed the dashboard, and I was like I needed to, needed to go help. And Mum mentioned to me one day, go doors wide open. You know, so I was like, I was at my the end of my tether, so to speak. Yeah. So I started going to doors wide open just to seek some support, just to, just to see what it was about. I have no idea what doors wide open was about. All I know is I got the doors and I walked in and I was the only person that come to the doors, head to toe covered in blood. And um, they took me in, had a chat, and I said, all right, I'll come in the next day. So I managed to get cleaned up a bit, went in the next day, and pretty much that became a routine, you know, when I was on the streets. was every day I'd go to doors just to hang out, you know. Sometimes I didn't even talk. Sometimes I just listened. And I was just having, you know, I just smoke cigarettes, drink coffee, and I'll just chill for like, um, I think it was eight hours when I was open back then. This was in 2019. Yep. So this is around, uh, this would have been around September. I think it was September. I just, yeah, just, that was my daily routine. During the day, I'd go to doors and I'd hold my school, I'd score meth and I'd get on. And they knew what meth, they knew what doors I was on. I was on meth, but I was always in denial. I'd say, "No, nah, it's smoke meth. I was smoking weed." <laughs> but um, and then it got to the point where um, you know, I was because I was still in psychosis, so I was still in heavily addiction. Um, and I was I was trying to amend my relationships with everyone, but I was still getting nowhere really. And someone at doors mentioned to me, they said, "Oh, Lee, why don't you try rehab?" You know, and. I was like, no, I don't need rehab. But that seed was planted. So then one day, you know, after after a few weeks, it was about a month, I come back and I spoke to one of the peer support workers at the time and I said, um, I want to go to rehab. You know, I want to I want to I want to get my kids back in life, you know. I want to get my partner at that time I want to get my partner back in life, you know. I was still in love and I just wanted to change, you know. I was I was still heavily, heavily obsessive, and I was just like really, really in love. And um, she had moved on by then; she was out of love. And then, yeah, um, before I knew it, I was receiving phone calls from um, Serenian House, did assessments, and then, yeah, I was in the TC down in Nana. So I did um, three weeks of assessment. The second week of the third week of assessment, I had to go to court for my um, five breaches of ERO, um, where I was given a, I was convicted with, well, I guess sentenced to a twelve month ISO, so it's a twelve month intensive supervision order, 
So I had to get like AOD counselor whilst in rehab and I had to do urinalysis, but I was just like, we did that in rehab anyway. So after my three months of assessment, that was just all, like, so I did my seven days of detox and then I did three, yeah, three weeks of assessment and then I was in stage one. There's three stages at Serene House back then in that up. And then, yeah, it was, it was the hardest eight months of my life. Like, I thought addiction was hard, but eight months of rehab was tough. I had to, like, literally face my emotions for the first time, face my feelings for the first time, things that I put at bay. Like, look at my childhood for the first time, look at my my actions at the face. Literally, it was like facing a tsunami um, of, it was just intense. And my coping mechanism, the meth, even alcohol, I couldn't take nothing. Yeah. I had to sit with it. I had to learn to sit with it for the first time ever. And, yeah, it was tough. So uh, I suppose there was a lot of other people in there with you. So was that a good experience, being able to share with other people? Yeah, it was. It was. I remember when I started, the first time I ever admitted I was an addict, that was January the 14th. It was my I think it was my seventh, my third day in rehab. I picked up the Narcotics Anonymous Blue Book and I was like reading that book. And that's when I realized that every page I was crying because I couldn't real, couldn't believe how true it was, you know, and I couldn't believe that I was an addict. And every time I would share, you know, where the people, that, the residents that would come in, you know, like there was a lot of similarities with my life, with my addiction. And for the first time, you know, I was like, wow, you know, like, I'm not alone. You know, I got that first humbling experience when I was when I went to the doors and realised I wasn't alone. But when I heard the stories in NA at the rehab and met people in the rehab, even talking to the um, counsellors that went through have lived that they had lived experience that went through the whole freaking world of addiction and and rehab and now work there, like it's just like all the stories are different but same same time. Yeah. And that's one thing you crave when you're using drugs is connection because when you use drugs, people that don't use drugs don't understand. So you always seek that connection. You find yourself hanging out with dealers. You find yourself hanging out with other drug users. So when I was in rehab, you know, recovering, I found myself, you know, connecting with the staff, with the people, and it helps. Sometimes it, it broke me. I wasn't – I don't. I wanted to leave every day. I wanted to say the kids. I missed the kids. I missed my ex. And then she moved on in April. When I was in rehab, and that was the tough, one of the toughest days to be. Well, I realised, you know, this is real. You know, like rah rah. Um, don't want to get back together. She's got a new partner now, and I know it was really painful. You know, it was, it was like it was testing. It was tough. Yeah. So, what was it like coming out of rehab for you? So I had a lot of expectations when I left rehab that I'd see my children, you know, that it would be awesome, you know, things were going to happen. Um, my AOD counsellor in rehab always told me, Lee, there might be a massive anticlimax to what you think it could be. And it was. I got out of rehab December, uh, September 15th, 2020, and it was a massive climax. My dad picked me up, went back to my hometown, and... I didn't get to see my children for two weeks. My ex taking my two kids with her partner on a holiday. So I, I did send my kids for two weeks after, you know. I found it overwhelming just going to the shops because I went in pre-COVID and come out post-COVID. Yeah. 
So <laughs> that was different, you know. So going shopping for the first time, instead of having the staff shop for you, it was different. Because my the TC I went to was all about behaviors. You learn you learn how to know other people's behaviors. So life became real different. When I started talking to like my sister, my father, I could identify when people like be, were being a victim. You started just it was a it was a different outlook. Life had just been fully changed. My outlook in life had fully changed. It was it was amazing, you know. When I first saw the kids, it was it was even better. You know, seeing the kids again was amazing. But going to the going to the casino, I was really bored. Went to the casino. I was told by my CEO, my corrections officer, to do nothing. She said, "Don't do nothing, Lee. Just find yourself. You know, just don't worry about relapse." So you know, I remember, I remember going to the casino. Went to the Burswood, and. I found myself really bored. I was putting money through the slots and I wanted to, I wanted to get, get connection again. So I bought a Coca-Cola. The rehab I went to, you're not allowed to smoke, so I had to quit smoking. So I didn't have a cigarette for like eight, nine months now. And I bought a pack of the cigarettes so I could go out the back and socialise, but I didn't want to drink alcohol. Um, so I didn't want to touch it now. I don't want to touch alcohol or drugs ever again, so I just started smoking cigarettes. Habit I picked back up, sadly. But, yeah, I found it hard. The hardest part I would have to say about leaving rehab would be was facing the reality. The reality that, okay, you're a single dad. Okay, you don't live with your kids anymore. Now, yes, you're clean. Yes, you've done the work. you got to you got to continue doing the work. I, I started going to NA meetings. You understand what NA is? NA yeah. meetings? Yeah. AA yeah. meetings. So I built up support network, kept on back to doors, just to build that support network around the outside, you know. I was still hurting a lot. Every day I still hurt, you know, like I miss the kids all the time. And um, so the plans I put in place when I was in rehab, which is to better my life, I work towards every day. That's why as soon as I found out about this course that this, like, this local uh, education department runs, um, I, I did a course in communicate skill set, which helped me get some qualifications to start working as a peer worker, kind of. So I was like... Um, it pretty much, I was able to do my cert free and get some RPL, which I'm going to currently do a traineeship. So it's like I wanted, I wanted to better myself every day. That's all I look at doing now is how can I better myself every day? How can I make my future the best future I can make to provide for my children? You know? I want to buy a house now. My goals, my drive is nonstop. I want to be the best worker I can be. I want to, have the, I want to be the best father I can be. You know, I want to do what I can do to make the best of my life. You know, like as long as I stay in recovery, and that's the thing as well, you know, I had some early triggers back then, but I'm over about two years and seven months clean now, almost three years clean. And it's just pretty much every day all I want to do is just do better. Yeah. So do you want to talk a little bit about being a peer support worker and and what that does for the people you're helping and also for you? Yeah, for sure. Um, I'd say for me, I find, because I've got that lived experience, because I was able to learn my legend at, at rehab about boundaries, about learning more about myself, learning how to put boundaries in place, going to the NA meetings, learning about the spiritual principles. And everything I learned, I was like, I'm able to put it in place at my job. So being a peer support worker, 
quite easy than breathing. Because all I'm doing is I'm doing what they did for me. I see people every day that come in and that's like, it reminds it, I just, it, it just reminds me of how I was when I first came to doors. So being to help them and help them like, you know, navigate their way through towards getting clean and seeking fun and recovery, it's the most mental rewarding job I've ever had in my life and it's the only job I've ever loved doing. And it's helped me with my recovery. It's helped me stay clean as long as I have been clean now doing this job. You get some days, I mean, the first day we, we started, it was um, full on. Like we didn't know what to do. We just pretty much just gave it a go. And we've been giving it a go ever since and we've just been yeah, killing it. But it's it's a humbling experience being a peer worker, um, a real humbling experience. Like from being where, where I was to where I am now to helping people where I was. Yeah. You know, to share my life story. So when you get people to come in and they don't want to talk to you. So I told them a bit about myself. You know, I said, you know, I used to smoke a lot of meth, did a lot of crime, you know, I did a lot of jobs, got in trouble, was under heavy surveillance, relationship breakdown, lost my kids, working to get my kids back in my life, you know. Don't have them back in my life fully yet, but I said, I'm working on it still, working on buying a house, this is that. When they hear that story, they're like, oh, wow, this guy... Has been through it, yeah. And he's he's gone through, he's gone through. He knows the emotions, the Trump feeling, and all of a sudden the ice is broken. So like they'll just start talking about what's going on for them. They'll start talking about the emotions, the hopelessness, the like the the hurt. And then it's when you deal with the parents whose children are in addiction, and they come in. It's like, so what's your son or daughter gone through? And they'll they'll tell me, okay, so my daughter's staying up late, or my son's staying up late. They're really narky, they're really aggressive, or they're really snappy, you know, all this, this, and that. And I'll listen to their story. And I'll be like, okay, so this is what I went through when I was on the when I was on the meth. And they'll be like, yeah, it's very similar, you know. I said, all right, okay, are you noticing any of this? You're noticing any of that behavior? Yes, we are. Okay, so it's leading towards it, like the possibility might be on methamphetamine. So I'll go back to like, I'll, I'll talk to them about Captain's um, drama triangle, the victim, the persecutor, and the rescuer. I'll compare it with the empowerment dynamic, like the challenge of the creator and the coach. I say to them, you know, like, what are you going to try to do is don't enable their behaviour. Find out where they fit on drama triangle and counter it the empowerment dynamic. And and help and the, the, helping the parents, I'd say that would be the hardest thing for me. It's, it's been the hardest thing for me because it's emotional. So after hearing their story, it's like, this is how my parents would have felt. This is how my partner would have felt at the time. Yeah. And, that's, and that was the hardest thing. Other people go through, it's just like, okay, I went through that. You, there's a way out. But when I hear the families talk, it's like, man, I put my family through help. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But it's a rewarding job. Yeah, yeah, it is. Okay. If anybody's listening who'd like to find out more about Doors Wide Open, uh, you can call them on 0897879298 or visit their website, doorswideopen.org.au. Or you can check out their Facebook page, uh, Doors Wide Open, Inc. Uh, that's about all we've got time for today. So I'd like to thank uh, Lee and Tanya for joining us today and sharing about the services Doors Wide Open provide to support those recovering from methamphetamine and other addictions and also provide assistance to those supporting them. Thank you. Cheers, Bill. Thank you. Coming up next, we have Bellamoir, the Spirit of Wire, hosted by Uncle Tell Jim Choco Edwards. 
Join Uncle Choco in the spirit of Wah on a journey of belonging and movement through singing lawns and yarn. Uh, I hope you'll be able to join us again next week when we'll be talking about recovery from drugs, alcohol, food and gambling addictions and support for the families and friends assisting their recovery. Thanks for listening. Stay safe and stay tuned now for more Radical Radio on 3CR. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.